The first thing I'm going to say is that this class is going to be podcast, so if you miss it and you're desperate to know what you missed, you can always get it from the podcast. Um, you're here for Thinking About Infinity. Um, do you have any idea what you're getting into? No, is that it? You do? No, okay. Um, well, that would kind of be the nature of infinity, is you wouldn't know what you were getting into. Um, so that's part of it. Here is a syllabus and also a poem that we're going to look at today. Um, but before we do that, um, can I just get a general sense? How many of you, and I guess these can be overlapping categories. I sort of feel like I should ask this as a negative. How many of you are in no way quantitative reasoning, science, hard thought, logic, hard stuff majors in any way? So that's a, how many of you are like appalled by the very idea of such things? Um, okay, well, you'll learn a lot. Um, that'll be good for you. Um, how many of you are no way you're going to do any of this um, mushy, ridiculous, ill-defined, absurd humanities, a poem is whatever anyone thinks it means kind of um, person? Oh, so you all think a poem is whatever it means? Okay, this is going to be really interesting. Um, how many of you are, I think I have to start asking these as positive questions. How many of you are doing a major or minor in econ? Zero. Cool. That's really, I think this may be the only time you could get the, these many people together at Brandeis and no one would be doing any econ. Um, or business? All right, um, that's going to be really interesting. Um, how many of you are European Cultural Studies majors? How many are History of Ideas? Um, okay, how many of you are, are first year students? Ha <laughs> um, <laughs> I laugh for reasons other than you imagine. Um, this is like the sixth or seventh time that I've taught this course, and this is the first time that it's not being taught as a first year seminar. So it used to be until a couple of years ago, um, there's a kind of relic to this still, but it used to be that there's a program at Brandeis called University Seminars. And the idea, um, and they were for first year students, USEMs they were called, and the idea was, it was sort of a cool idea. And it worked, but it was expensive, which means, you know. Um, well, you're not econ major, so you may not know what that means. Um, what it means is no. Um, but the idea used to be that people in departments at Brandeis would teach courses in fields that were not their own fields, um, would teach courses on issues that they were really interested in, but that they came to from not quite the standard way that people would do that. Um, and the result was sometimes really, really interesting and um, exactly what a liberal arts discussion um, class should be sort of work. Um, so it's actually, this really is appropriate for first year students, um, but I think it's also appropriate for non-first year students. Basically, this class is going to be all over the place. Um, and by all over the place, I mean there's going to be um, poetry, there may be some, there'll certainly be some, and there may be a fair amount of art history. Um, there will be philosophy, there will be some math. In fact, what I'm going to tell you right now, in hopes that this won't scare you away but will excite you, but it may just scare you away, um, is that there's, the final exam is a take-home exam. 
It's not a Harvard style, you should all collaborate and get kicked out, take home exam. Um, but it is a take home exam. Um, and I'm going to tell you the two questions on the take home exam right now. Um, and what the exam is going to be is that you will sit down for no more than two hours and answer those questions um, starting with a blank screen at that point. Um, answer those questions just explaining what it is you should be able to explain by the end of the semester. So the two things you should be able to explain, and by explain, I actually did this once with my mom, so I'm going to say explain it so my mom who knows nothing about math could understand it. Um, explain why the square root of 2 is irrational. Um, that is, you'll have to show that it's irrational to someone who has no mathematical knowledge or very little mathematical knowledge. By mathematical knowledge um, that they do have, basically it would be sixth grade at highest. You would have to know um, what it would mean to multiply two numbers together. Um, you would have to know what the difference between odd and even numbers were. That's base, and you would have to know what a square root was. But anyone not know what a square root is? It's like if you take a bonsai tree and, the, no, it's not. Okay. Um, so that's, so to someone who knows only those things, explain why the square root of two is irrational, what it means for it to be irrational. That will be one of your two take-home exam questions. Um, the other take-home exam question will be the proof that there is more than one order of infinity. This, again, is something that you can explain so my mom can understand it. Um, I'm not actually going to have her read all your papers, but she did one year, um, and she understood most of it, so that was good. Um, so do people have any idea what I mean when I say that there's more than one order of infinity? What do I mean? That some infinities are bigger than other infinities. Um, and that is one of the great either discoveries or inventions or paradoxes or insights or um, imaginary results of late 19th century mathematics. Um, in fact, it turns out that as soon as you can prove that there's more than one order of infinity or the very way that you can prove that there's more than one order of infinity, you can prove that there are many orders of infinity that there's an order of infinity which is um, generally thought of as the smallest order of infinities, and that's the number of natural numbers. Um, actually, it's the number of whole numbers. Um, then there's an order of infinity that's greater than that, and then there's an order of infinity that's greater still. Um, how many orders of infinity do you think there are? Infinity. Why do you think that? But I thought there were 42 is what I heard. Um, yeah. But which order of infinity, infinite of the order of infinities? Right. You know so if you say there are an infinite order, there are an infinite number of different orders of infinity, they are classically, uh, anyone know how they're denoted um, mathematically? What um, the lowest order of infinity is called? Aleph sub zero. Everyone know what the letter Aleph is? Mm -hmm. Anyone not? Can some, do we have chalk? We do. Also, is Jennifer here? Yeah, I, while, while I work this out, can you write an olive? Uh, I've seen it a couple of different ways. 
All right, never mind. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Someone who want to write it down? Go ahead. Um, Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it is um, used by Georg Cantor. No, that would be a straight line. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Yeah, that's the stick figure version of the Aleph. Um, so Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is an interesting letter in Kabbalah, which you're too young to know about. Um, I hope you haven't read it. <laughs> um, it is used by Contour, who is the first person to make these arguments, to indicate different orders of infinity. And the lowest order of infinity is Aleph naught, or Aleph sub-zero. So the question is, how high can this number go? There's Aleph naught, Aleph one, Aleph two, et cetera. And the answer is, you can go up to Aleph sub-infinity. There are an inf infinite number of such Alephs, um, an infinite number of different orders of infinity. Um, but what order of infinity would that infinite number be? That is, are there Aleph naught orders of infinity, do you think? Guess. It would be kind of useless if there were. <laughs> Why would the it be notation, useless? The notation wouldn't have any meaning if it could keep going forever and ever. So if, there, if, it, if it were not Aleph sub naught, but if it were Aleph sub... And then there could be more. And then the notation yeah. would go on forever. Right. And the question is, what do you mean by forever? Infinite. <laughs> yeah, but what kind of infinite? Uh, as many orders of infinity as possible. Uh, how, the, yeah, but a countable number of as many orders of infinity as possible? Or no. 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 Uncountably, uncountable, uncountable, an infinite number of times, that itself repeated an infinite number of times, itself taken to the infinite power an infinite number of times, etc. Orders of infinity. Escher? Sorry? Were you friends with Escher? <laughs> no, but I, th I think he thought about some of this stuff. So lots of infinities. Um, and um, where you only have to prove the first one. That is, you only have to prove that there is more than Aleph naught, that you can go higher than that. Um, that turns out to be an exquisitely beautiful and elegant proof. Um, it can be done, as I say, you can do both those things um, cold in front of an empty screen if you understand it um, in probably in an hour in a take-home exam. That is what your take-home exam will be. Um, so now you know, and that's something that over the course of the course you will learn if you don't know it already. Does anyone know either of the proofs? Um, you know which one? You know, so, you oh, know. Yeah, I, can, I know one of, with the different decimal values of yeah. how you change the one decimal value right. in place. Yeah, so that's called the diagonalization argument. And that's what we'll do um, in the course. And it's um, really sweet and really beautiful. It's really, cool. it's really, say it louder. Let people hear you. It is really cool. How cool is it? Awesomely cool. Awesome. Okay. I agree. Thank you. Okay. So, yeah, um, so that's a cool thing. Um, 
that's what the take-home exam will be. There will also be two papers. Um, there may be quizzes, depending on whether you're paying attention or not. Um, if you're not paying attention, what's the point of a quiz, right? Um, <laughs> I guess you're not paying attention. No, that wouldn't be the way we do things. Um, I want to introduce Jennifer Kessler, um, who is going to be the TA for this class. That means she'll um, lead a few um, whole class um, pure discussion sections where you can ask her questions and um, get into arguments um, and complain. Um, and um, and she'll be doing half the grading. That is to say, you'll have two papers in the course, and each of us will grade one of your papers. Um, what you have in front of you is the um, syllabus as it is right now. Um, it is very possible, in fact, it's almost inevitable, that this won't turn out to be a record of what we do in class because as people, as we figure out, as you figure out, as I figure out what you all are interested in, um, we'll be concentrating more on some aspects of um, the issue and concentrating less um, on other aspects. And it may be that if you get really fascinated by stuff, we'll go down certain byways. As I say, I've taught this course a number of times, a finite number, but still a number. Um, I've taught this course a number of times, and each time it's been different because each time people have been interested in different things. The idea in the course is, is a simple one, which is that basically um, we have finite brains. Um, whatever our minds can do, they can do on the basis of what our brains are able to do. There's a finite amount of information, there's a finite amount of knowledge, there's a finite amount of stuff that we can contain in our brains, in our minds. And yet we're able to talk about things like infinity. We're able to talk about things that exceed the finite, that go beyond the finite. We're in some way or other able to think about those things using a finite architecture. And um, that fact is a really interesting fact. Um, how we do that, how we think beyond ourselves, is an extremely basic question for all human thought. We're not isolated within our own minds, and yet somehow at the same time we are isolated within our own minds. That's where we are. That's where we live, is within our own minds. How could we be anywhere else? How could we live anywhere else? And yet somehow it's a characteristic of thought, um, possibly of animal thought in general, or of primate thought, or of mammalian thought, but certainly of human thought, to be able to go beyond itself, to be self-transcending or self-succeeding, self-exceeding. So, um, self um, that fact is something also that we can think about. And whenever you find yourself thinking about those things, it seems that issues of infinity start coming up. Or to put it another and maybe less dramatic way, whenever you start thinking about infinity one way or another, it seems that um, issues of self-exceeding, self-transcending um, ideas in all 
walks, all aspects of life start coming up. So that's why we may go off in a bunch of different directions. Um, we may get interested in a bunch of different things. But there's something about the idea of thinking about infinity. I gave you um, at the top of the syllabus a quotation from David Hilbert. Do people know who he is? Anyone? Um, so David Hilbert was one of the greatest of mathematicians um, at the beginning of the 20th century. And he set um, very famously a bunch of mathematical problems that the 20th century he imagined would solve. Um, these are known as Hilbert's problems. A lot of them were solved. A lot of them turned out to be insoluble. Um, but we're going to read an essay of his um, called On the Infinite. And in that essay, there's this sentence. The definitive clarification of the nature of the infinite, instead of pertaining just to the sphere of specialized scientific interests, and there he means specifically mathematics, but also things like physics, the how, how long eternity is, how far space extends. These are all questions that are coming up for Einstein. Um, those questions are mathematical and physical questions, but they're also questions that have to do with um, human thought, human anxiety, human hope, human fear. So the definitive clarification of the nature of the infinite, instead of pertaining just to the sphere of specialized scientific interests, is needed for the dignity of the human intellect itself. That is, that it somehow belongs to the dignity of the human intellect, finite though we are, to be able to think about the infinite. You can, you can think of this, you can see this as a theological question, for example, that if we as human beings think about God, if God is an issue for human beings, and God is an issue for human beings even if you're an atheist, if you think about God in some way or another, you have to be finding a route to thinking about the infinite. Milton in Paradise Lost has his God say, God being a character in Paradise Lost, um, God defines himself as, I am who fills infinity. That's what God says about himself. He says other things, but that's um, one of his attributes, is that he fills infinity. So to think about God is to think about the infinite. It doesn't follow that to think about the infinite is to think about God, but for a lot of people it will feel that way. It certainly felt that way to Contour, who was the person who proved that there were uh, more than one order of infinity. The um, very quick and somewhat funny um, discussion we just had about how many orders of infinity are there and what level of the number of infinite orders of infinity are there infinite orders of infinity of. I feel sure I didn't put that right. Um, that was a question that drove Contour crazy, um, almost literally. Um, he spent most of his life after he established all this stuff about infinity, which took him about 10 years, um, he spent the rest of his life trying to prove that Bacon had written Shakespeare's plays. Um, and he eventually was committed to an asylum. Um, 
So it did sort of drive him crazy, but what he finally decided was this proved that God existed because there were infinity upon infinity, even unto an infinite number of infinities upon infinities of infinities. This was an absolutely unthinkable thought, he thought. Um, he named this the set Tav, which he called an absolutely inconsistent set, which nevertheless had to exist by mathematical definition. There's only one place it could exist, the mind of God. So infinity for contour has to be something that can be thought in its entirety because we can think about it using tools. There's something that we're thinking about, something that belongs only to thought. It has to be thinkable in its entirety. The only entity that could think it in its entirety is God, therefore God exists. A lot of people don't find that argument convincing, um, but it does serve to show the connection. Yeah. Go ahead. That's, we will talk about that. We'll talk about that, but one way to ask this is to ask the first question, I didn't think we'd do this today, but okay, um, the first question that Contour asked himself. Um, the question he asked himself is, what is the highest finite number? Or another way of asking that question is, how many finite numbers are there? Does that question make sense to you? Mm -hmm. um, it has to in some sense, because you can't say, or can you, that there are an infinite number of finite numbers because every finite number is finite. And the highest finite number before you get to infinity would be a finite number. Um, the number of finite numbers, how many finite numbers um, in the set from 1 to 3? Three, set from 1 to 11? Yeah, this is simple, set from 1 to 73? Yeah, so if you take the set of all finite numbers, there has to, do people know what sets are? You may think you do. <laughs> um, okay, so take, take a simple idea, the set of all finite numbers. We, we can drop, generally, we would drop um, the idea of the set of, and we would just say the finite numbers. So. Um, how many elements in the set of finite numbers? Well, if you take the set of numbers from 1 to 73, it has 73 elements. If you take, and here we're talking about whole natural numbers. Um, that's what, that's um, the idea of finite numbers was renamed as the idea of natural numbers so that people didn't freak out um, thinking about what finitude was. I'm going to say, <coughs> and this is something that we'll see a lot of in the course of the course, that there's a lot of mathematical terminology that is used and that has been promulgated in order to stop people from worrying about various really hard philosophical problems. So Contour was interested in the finite numbers. Later on, when people were taught about counting and infinity in, I don't know, when do, you, when do you start learning that? Fourth grade, fifth grade, that you go one, two, three, dot, dot, dot. When did you learn about integers? How old were you? Fourth, Fourth or fifth grade. Okay. Sorry? 
Okay, so you learn about integers, and then one of the things you learn that may have puzzled you is the difference between the whole numbers and the natural numbers. Is this something, is this a distinction you remember learning sometime in elementary school? So there's, what happens in our schooling is we learn mathematical proofs somewhere around seventh or eighth grade. That's the first time you learn about proofs. Um, before that, you're taught a lot of math but you're not taught the idea of a proof. Is that, does that correspond to your experience? There's actually a reason for this, which is the things that you learn before you learn to do proofs are actually extremely hard to prove. It's very hard to prove, for example, that multiplying two negative numbers, multiplying a negative number by another negative number will yield a positive number. Everyone knows that negative one times negative one equals? Not easy to prove. So you're taught that before you're taught the very idea of proof. Here's another, and here's the thing that would make it not so easy to prove. Um, the general rule, if you look at the number line, is to say something like, okay, let's take two numbers, 10 and 15, and multiply them together, and we get? All right, you should all major in math, or at least econ. Um, so 10 times 15 is 150. Now let's take two smaller numbers, let's say um, 5 times 7, so um, half or less than the two original numbers. 5 times 7 is? Yes, yes, good. Um, so if you multiply two larger numbers, 10 times 15, you get an answer, 150, which is larger than multiplying two smaller numbers, 5 times 7, in which case you get an answer, 35. This is so obvious as to um, need pointing out, because otherwise you would never think about it. Multiply two larger numbers and you get a larger result than if you multiply two smaller numbers. If A is larger than B and C is larger than D, so you have a greater, let's say, than a sub 1, just to um, keep track of what's what, and b is greater than b sub 1, then a times b is times b sub 1, greater than, equal to, or less than? Yeah, so 10 times 15, um, a is larger than a sub 1, 5 times 7, 150 is greater than 35, right? So the basic idea is if you put numbers on the number line, as you get smaller and smaller, if you take two numbers that are on, um, to the left on the number line of two other numbers, Multiply the numbers that, it, everyone knows what the number line is, right? So you multiply, let's say we have here's 5, here's 7, here's 10, here's 15. If we draw a big line there and multiply numbers to the left of that line, the result will be a number that's smaller than multiplying numbers to the right of that line, right? Okay, very obvious. So in the 18th century, Euler said, so where did the negative numbers go? And the problem was that if you then get to even smaller numbers still, 
you might get to negative 15 and negative 20. And if you multiply negative 15 times negative 20, what's the answer? 300. Not negative 300, but 300. So suddenly, we've gone through the zero, and suddenly we're going to smaller numbers still, but when you multiply those two smaller numbers still, that is 5 and 7 are less than 10 and 15, but negative 15 and negative 20 are way less than 10 and 15, and yet negative 15 times negative 20 equals not a smaller but a larger number. So one thing that Euler thought was that maybe the negative numbers existed beyond infinity. That the way to do the number line was not the familiar way you were taught in third grade or whatever, but what you actually did was 0, 1, 2, 3, etc., infinity, and then negative numbers. That was the proposal 300 years ago. Um, because there's an inconsistency here. Now, you were not taught that inconsistency. No one told you the number line was actually hotly contentious. It just seems obvious. You look at thermometers, and it gets to be below zero, and that means that it's colder than zero. Or it's above zero, and that means that it's warmer than zero. What's the big deal? But something happens when you get to the negative numbers that makes everything strange. A lot of what we'll be doing in this class is looking at very basic things that you know because you've been taught them, but that you, that you were taught before you had the idea of proof. Once the idea of proof comes into your life, then you can start asking, how do we know these things? But when you're in third grade, you're just told that's the way it is, and you believe it. Um, the question is, should you believe it? Yeah. So every question that I asked a grade school teacher when I said, but why is it that way, those are the kind of things we're going to do. Yes, cool. exactly. Actually, yeah. It's actually relatively easy to prove why. Or not, not like mathematically prove, but like to show why a negative number times a negative number is a positive number. It, uh, do you think you could have done it from first principles? Probably not. No, it's relatively easy if you ask and then. Well, like to teach a child. Yeah, once you accept that this is how the number line should go. So one of the things is, so one reason that you're taught the number line as a simple horizontal line is so that it's somewhat easier to prove that negatives times negatives equal positives. Um, but there's a problem, which is that as you're getting lower and lower, the rules of multiplication, the rules of what you expect from a product are changing. Another thing that's, that's hard to prove is, for example, the simplest of all things, the associative law. That is, that A plus B, in parentheses, A plus B plus C, equals A plus B plus C. Um, these are things you learn very, very young. Um, you, know, you know that the associative law works. You know that the commutative law works for multiplication and addition. There are all sorts of things that you know work, but you don't know why. And it turns out they are provable, but, and they're provable using elementary means, but not for grade schoolers. Um, it requires a fair amount of thought to prove 
those things. So one of the things, so what, part of what math education is, is teaching people a bunch of concepts um, without proving them and without them even knowing that there is this idea of proof and then teaching them the idea of proof later. One of the things that happens is the idea of finite numbers is translated into the idea of natural numbers. If you use the term natural number and you distinguish natural from whole numbers, that's just something that you take a quiz on in fifth grade and you get the distinction and that's good, now you pass the quiz, let's go on. Um, but you may wonder why. Why does it matter so much that there are the natural numbers, one, two, three, four, five, dot, 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 and the whole numbers which seem to be almost the same thing except for the zero. Zero, one, two, three, four, five dot, dot, dot. Why did you have to learn that distinction? So the answer is contour. And it's essentially this, that if you take the set of finite numbers, which is the original word, not natural, but finite. If you take the set of finite numbers, what you can say is the number of elements in that set. Do people know what word you use to describe the number of elements in a set? What kind of number is that? The bishop number, the um, archbishop, the cardinal number, yes. The cardinal number tells you the number of elements in a set. If there are 45 of you, of you here, which is roughly what there are, um, the cardinal number of people in this class not including me, would be 45. Um, so the number of people in a room would, um, be a, would um, tell you how many elements in the set of people in the room. If you have a set of numbers, and those are the natural numbers, the finite numbers, the counting numbers, one, two, three, four, five, um, and if there's no um, gap within them, so that we have the numbers 1 to 17 inclusive, let's say, then it doesn't matter what order those numbers are put in the set. It could be 1, 17, 2, 16, 3, 15, 4, 14, etc. The highest number, as long as there are no gaps and as long as you have all of them, the highest number in the set will also be the number of elements in that set. That's really only true of, of um, the set of cardinal numbers without gaps, any set of cardinal numbers without gaps. Does that make sense to people? Um, so you have this idea of finite numbers. It's a well-formed idea. Um, you can't work with the infinite unless you have the idea of the finite. So let's just say the finite numbers. And you say the finite numbers, and the question is, are there a finite number of finite numbers? And the answer is there have to be because every number in that set is finite. So all you have to do is find the highest number in the set, and that's the number of finite numbers. All you have to do, I say as though it's easy. It's not, but we have this great thing that we can do as human beings in order to think about stuff that we don't know, which is that we can assign them names for the unknown. We can just call them X, the unknown, or in this case, Omega the unknown. Um, do people know what omega is? You've learned the aleph, that's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Omega, yeah? Yeah, anyone? 
yeah, last letter of the Greek alphabet. Um, actually stands for big O, so interestingly enough, the last letter of the Greek alphabet is a big zero. Um, omega, as opposed to O micron or Omicron, which is the little O. So Omega is written like this, looks like a W, and um, that's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so what Contour did was he said, let's just call, we don't know what the highest finite number is. Um, it would probably be pretty hard to actually say what it is because you would need um, more atoms than exist in the universe to write it down under any notation um, because there are a finite number of atoms in the universe. But we'll just give it a name, omega. And we can therefore say that the highest finite number is omega. So what does that mean if you add one to omega? What's, what separates the highest finite number from infinity? That we don't know. Some strange barrier, sort of like at the end of 2001, the movie. Um, somehow you go through, we know that there isn't a higher finite number than omega. So if we add one to the number omega, suddenly it seems like we burst through into a new world, the world of the infinite. Um, do we know where that is? It's, it's, it's got a kind of Star Trek quality to it. Do we know where that is? No. Do we know when we're approaching omega? No. Could we approach omega? Not in your lifetime. Um, but what happens if we know that this thing exists, the highest finite number, and it has to exist because it's finite. If we know that the highest finite number exists, then the question is what happens if you go beyond that? And we know that omega plus one can't be a finite number. How do we know that? Yeah. Um, isn't it kind of asymptotic? Like, you reach a point where you just give up? Like, yeah. It's not necessarily the problem that we can't find a number. It's just that, you know, we never stop writing it down. Like, if all my children just continuously wrote numbers all their life, they would never write down the largest finite number. Because, you know, they just written it, and then someone else would write one more digit. I know. And that's why we cut the Gordian knot by saying we don't know what this number is. And in fact, for reasons that we'll talk about later, it couldn't be written down. Um, there's, a, there's a concept that we're going to talk about at the end of the course called busy beaver numbers. Um, and busy beaver numbers are finite but inaccessible. Um, the idea of inaccessible numbers is something we'll talk about. And it's different than infinite. Yeah, inaccessible but still. separates omega from infinite because it's inaccessible but finite. Exactly. Okay. But, let, but we, it, we can nevertheless name it. We'll call it omega, and then we say any larger number than omega is not finite. Yeah? Well, with, well can you also say that it exists differently in everybody's brains, considering that we're talking about kids writing out numbers? Because, you know, everyone can count up to a different number, so you eventually get to where you can't go any higher. So mm -hmm. that is basically your set of, I guess, inaccessible numbers. And then, so every, every person's brain has a different idea of what is the greatest set of finite numbers. Yeah, so, so certainly it's the case that people get um, nauseated thinking about big numbers at different levels. Um, the highest number ever used in a mathematical proof, um, does anyone know about this, is called Graham's number. Um, anyone know what Graham's number is? Very large. It's big, yes. Um, Graham was a um, Bell Lab, is a Bell Lab, well, Bell Labs doesn't exist anymore. He was a Bell Lab um, uh, combinatorial theorist. And um, he 
proved that the upper bound for a certain combinatorial um, class of problems was what's called Graham's number. Now, Graham's number is a number that he had to invent a new notation to write. Um, if you think about it, what's the, how can you write a big number? So one thing you could do is just say, okay, 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. And then you've written a million using, if you include the commas, 9. If you don't use the, include the commas, seven different characters, right? Can you write a million more efficiently than using seven characters? Ten to the sixth, right? That uses three different characters. Um, so how about a trillion, which is a million million? Um, what's the most efficient way you could write a trillion? Ten to the twelfth, yeah. Or ten to the sixth to the sixth. Um, no, ten to the sixth to the second. Sorry, 10 to the 6 to the second, um, both ways of writing a trillion. So, Graham, um, so exponential writing of numbers 2 to the 2 is 4, 2 to the 2 to the 2 is 16, 2 to the 2 to the 2 to the 2 is 256, etc. Exponential ways of writing numbers um, gets you to large numbers quickly, but not nearly quickly enough for Graham. Um, Graham figured out that if he tried to write his number exponentially, that is as 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10 or whatever, it would require more ink atoms than exist in the universe to write that number. So you couldn't write it down exponentially. So he had to come up with a new notation that would increase faster than exponential um, speed. So basically he comes up, yeah. Um, so, like, he gave it a name, Graham's number. Well, then how did he achieve that? Like, how did he get to that number? How do you fathom it? Yeah, yeah you don't fathom it. So that's part of, yeah, part of the point is we have, we're trying to handle the infinite with finite resources. Your question is a great one, and it's, the, it's really the soul of the class. We're trying to handle the infinite with finite resources. And to some extent we can, and to some extent we can't. And um, we can because we can just say, oh yes, the infinite, my friend. The infinite is my friend and that's all fine. And then it seems like we've handled the infinite. Or we can say, God, um, I am saved by my personal God and that's great. And now it looks like, yes, we've handled um, what, again, Milton calls the uncontrollable. Um, on the other hand, um, when you try to fathom it, you can't. So the human intellectual experience of dealing with the infinite is to look at something that you can start trying to fathom and in some sense you can handle and in some sense you can't. And figuring out how those two things go together can be very frustrating, but that frustration can lead to insight. My hope is it will. Um, the idea here is part, my idea here is partly to make this seem a little bit vertiginous. That it's very easy to say, oh yeah, Monday, Wednesday, I'm going to take thinking about the infinite and um, then I'm going to um, be able to get to the gym on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and that's great. Um, 
And then, are you thinking about the infinite when you think about taking thinking about the infinite? Well, in some very tiny sense you are, um, but to go farther is going to be strenuous, and you'll never get very far, but you can still get to some interesting places. So that's part of the point. Um, let's look at um, the Dickinson poem, which is making in a sense, the opposite claim, which is that um, the infinite is completely fathomable. What isn't fathomable is the human mind, is the finite human mind. Do people know this poem, The Brain is Wider Than the Sky? Um, can you read it aloud? Yeah, you were nodding. Okay. Read away. What's your name? I'm Joy. Joy. Thank you. Um, really nicely read and nicely paused. Dickinson's dashes are dashes, just so you know, um, where she wants a kind of pause for thought. They're not grammatical dashes. They're not um, uh, pauses in phraseology. Um, but they're, in a sense, um, her idea of, if you were an actor, how to recite these lines, how to think them through as you're reciting them. So let's just go through this stanza by stanza. The brain is wider than the sky for put them side by side. Put what side by side? Yeah, the brain and the, sky, and the sky. Put them side by side. How would you do that? How would you put the brain and the sky side by side? Yeah. Lobotomy. Lobotomy? <laughs> I, he, he was being clever. The head open. Yes, he was just being clever. Um, you know, you know the saying: "I'd rather have a free bottle in front of me than a prefrontal lobotomy." Um, it's a good one. What were you saying? Okay. Um, put them side by side. Yeah, I guess you could. You could do a kind of uh, Frankenstein taking a brain out of a dead body. But where's he going to find some sky to put it next to? Juxtaposition. Juxtaposition. OK, that's a good way of saying put them side by side. How do you do it? Yeah, Isabel. Yeah, it's the idea of, of juxtapositioning, of putting things side by side. That's a metaphorical idea. It's not The metaphor is compare these two things. Um, put the Samsung Galaxy next to the iPhone, put them side by side and decide which one is better. But you can't really do that with the brain and the sky um, because one is not in the sky but in the head um, and the other is way higher above that. So to say put them side by side is in a sense already a demonstration of what Dickinson is saying. 
you can only put them side by side in the brain. It's only by thinking about them together, by juxtapositioning them, by putting them together in the brain that you can put them side by side. So they both fit in the brain. The sky and the brain both fit in the brain. Yeah? I guess I would say the, the brain's names for the sky and the brain fit in the brain. Mm -hmm. But um, it seems like there's something here about whether are we encoding the brain in the brain or are we just encoding the name for the brain in the brain? Well, we're certainly encoding the name for the brain in the brain. There's no question that what we can't really think, it's almost by definition, what it would be impossible for the human brain to think is the totality of the human brain. Um, that would be like having a map of something that was not only life-sized, that is a map of terrain that was the size of the terrain it was the map of, which wouldn't do you much good. Um, but in this case, it would be that um, the map would be larger than the terrain that nevertheless contained it. If you tried to think the entire brain with a brain, there would be the part that was looking at the brain that it was thinking about. If you think about a piece of chalk, in your mind is the mental representation of the piece of chalk, and then there's the part of you that's considering the piece of chalk. If you try to put the whole brain into the brain, there'd be no space left over to consider it. So it has to be a name. It has to be the brain, capital B. It has to be a name. But what about when you look at the sky? So you go outside, um, it's, you even do it in Wyoming, and big sky country, and you look around and there's sky everywhere. Um, what's happened to that sky when you're looking at it? Where is it when you're looking at it? It's being, processed. it's being processed in your mind, in your brain. This entirety of the sky is somehow something that you can be aware of only because it's been reduced to the size of your pupils or smaller so that there can be an image of it in your retina which can then be um, uh, sent to the brain. Yeah. Yeah, this is not a pipe. Yeah, but that would be a painting. The point about the so everyone know the Magritte painting. This is not a pipe. Um, it's it's a famous. Sorry. This is a painting of a pipe, and then the title is "This is not a pipe." Yes. Yeah. So it's a, what you see is is there's just a pipe. Um, no, it's not a pipe. Yeah, it's a painting <laughs> of a pipe. No, it's, it's not. It's a It's certainly the painting of a pipe. It's just not a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. That's actually a crucial distinction. The painting of something and the thing itself are very different. Um, if, he were to if he were to say this is the painting of a pipe, that would be true. Um, if he were to say this is not the painting of a pipe, that could be true but would be harder um, to argue for. But, but Magritte's point is, um, here is a picture of a pipe, and if you think it's a pipe, you're wrong. It's a picture of a pipe. Um, and you should think about the fact that the of matters. If you say this is a pipe, that's not true. If you say 
um, this is a picture of a pipe. It is true. Um, so, but the question is, if you look at a picture of the sky, then clearly it's not the sky. But if you do look at the sky, what seems to happen is your brain is containing it. Do we have any access to what's outside of our minds? Well, we do only to the extent that our minds can absorb those things outside of our minds. The only thing we have access to is what's in our own minds. Um, if we had access to what wasn't in our mind, how would we ever know? What kind of access would we have to it? If this chalk isn't in your mind, then where is it? Well, it feels like it's got one leg in the world, but it's also got one leg. See, it's a two, it doesn't look like a two-legged piece of chalk, but it is. One leg's in your mind. It's actually a 46-legged piece of chalk. One leg in your mind and one leg in my hand. Um, but anything that, can, that we can perceive, we perceive because it enters our mind. That's what perception means. It's impossible to perceive something without that thing entering your mind. And so when we see a painting that says this is not a pipe, no, it's not. It's a painting. But when we see an actual pipe, it would be wrong to say of it, this is not a pipe. And the actual pipe that we're seeing is somehow also in our mind. Um, did you want to say something? Okay, well then how valid is anything if it is exclusive to individual perception? Like that, I, my brain is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you try and fit a sky into a brain. It can hurt. Um, I'm not saying it's exclusive. One thing, this is again, um, the word you used was transcendence. Um, one way that in our minds we nevertheless point outside of our minds. That's what infinity is about, is pointing. If, again, if you think of the number line as 0, 1, 2, dot, dot, dot. That dot, dot, dot is how in just a finite number of signs you gesture beyond. And that gesturing beyond is something that we do in our minds to point elsewhere, to point outside. So if you look at the sky, somehow your brain takes in what you're looking at. And in that sense, the brain is wider than the sky that the one the other will contain. The brain, you go outside, you look at the sky, and your mind contains the sky that you're looking at. Yeah? Yeah, that's she's not looking at that. What she what what this is is perhaps a love poem. That's something that we have to decide by the end of the first stanza. So but take it take it work with her. Um, assume that what she's saying makes some kind of sense and figure out what kind of sense she means. So the brain is wider than the sky. Four, put them side by side. The one the other will contain, that is the brain will contain the sky, with ease and you beside. So who's that you? Yeah? The thing you just talked about being a love poem, in poetry you often 
identify as like a lover or, or someone significant other? Okay, so if the U is an addressee, that is, if you think of this as a love poem, and Dickinson isn't saying, um, that's a thing about her, is that she almost never says. But if you think about this as a love poem, then what she seems to be saying is, look, I can look at the sky, but there's also another tremendous thing that I'm thinking about at the same time. That is, you. When I think about things that are tremendous, but that my mind is nevertheless completely obsessed with, you and the sky can be measured by the same metric. That's how big you are to me. And there's always room in my thought for you. When I try to do a little bit of philosophy, when I try to think about the relation of the mind to the world, of the brain to the sky, still a voice in my heart keeps repeating, you, you, you. Anyone but George know what that is? <laughs> Cole Porter, Night and Day, one of the great songs of the 20th century. Um, still, a, still a voice in my heart keeps repeating, you, 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 night and day, you are the one. No? Only you beneath the moon and under the sun. I think he's actually thinking of Dickinson. In the roaring traffic's boom, in the silence of my noisy room, I think of you day and night. Ah, you got to go see Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. Lots of them. You don't know that one, Amanda? It's terrible. All right. I've been on auditions for the past two days. My brain is so fried right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe it's not wider than the sky. Um, not right now. <laughs> So whatever I'm thinking about, if this is a love poem, she might be saying is, I'm thinking about you. Whatever I'm thinking about, I'm also thinking about you, capital Y, you. Yeah. Which is really interesting when, if I can skip to the third stanza, she addresses God because a lot of people currently, in my experience with theology, um, that do align with an institution or an organized religion, but don't believe in God, find God in relationship, relationships with others. Mm -hmm. And so Good. This, nice. is going, nice. this, this is going the other way with that connection. This is saying, when I think of the tremendous in, ineffable qualities of God, I relate that back to you. Versus when I think about how much, how much I care about you and how, how, like I can't, how ineffable, how I can't even put words to what you mean to me, I get God from that. It goes both directions. Okay, good. Nice. Um, and that can also explain something about the capitalization of the Y in U. Okay, um, what if the U isn't the person she's interested in? What's the other possibility? Yeah, Joy. Well, they might be talking about like that you can uh, keep thinking about your identity at the same time as you can think of uh, the sky. Yeah. Yeah, again, that would be like the brain trying to think about the brain. That the brain, that the U can be. Here, look, you want to know how wide the brain is? Well, here's what you can do. Here's a little thought experiment you can do. Do people know the term thought experiment? Um, it's an important term. It's sort of um, the relation of thinking about the physical world, which is what we do experiments with, 
Um, but thinking about the physical world just by thinking about things in thought. Do people know what Galileo proved, that if you drop a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight um, simultaneously, which will hit the ground first? Does anyone know? Same, Same time. time. And in a vacuum, if you drop a feather and um, a brick, if it's in a vacuum, which will hit the ground first? The same time. The same time. Now, a lot of people think that Galileo actually went up the Tower of Pisa and dropped things, but he didn't. He proved this through a thought experiment. What he did was he said, take a 10-pound weight and take a 1-pound weight. Let's assume, as people thought, that the 10-pound weight would fall faster. Then um, what you would expect would fall faster still is an 11-pound weight. So why don't we get a pound of rope and tie the 10-pound weight to the 1-pound, or, or let's say a 12-pound weight, um, tie the 10-pound weight to the 1-pound weight. We now have an object that weighs 12 pounds, containing a 10-pound weight, a pound of rope, and a 1-pound weight. So what happens if we drop that? Will that drop faster than just the 10-pound weight? Or will the 10-pound part of the <laughs> rope start falling fast, but the 1-pound act as a kind of parachute, the 1-pound at the other end? And will the rope get taut? And will the 1-pound weight slow things down? So maybe we could really slow things down by putting, putting um, just a tiny, tiny bit of dust at the end of a little filament on the other end of the 1-pound weight. And he said, if you think about it, no, that can't be. The way we weigh things means that they all have to fall at the same rate. In fact, if you think about any 10-pound weight, what it is is a 5-pound weight attached to another 5-pound weight stuck together to make a 10-pound weight. So why, doesn't the two five, why don't the two 5-pound weights fall more slowly than the 10-pound weight that they are? So the thought experiment was it makes no sense. The only way falling makes sense, the way we've experienced it, the way we see it in the world, is if all things fall at the same acceleration. Um, that was Galileo's proof, and that's a thought experiment. Um, that's kind of the foundation for modern physics, and Galileo did that through a thought experiment. So here what we can say is, here, do a thought experiment. Dickinson is saying to her reader, take the brain, take the sky, Put them side by side and look, the brain, your brain, since you're the one who's putting them side by side, this is following up on what Isabel said, your brain, since you're, since you're the one putting them side by side, is able to think of both of those things and you can be aware of yourself thinking of both of those things. So in your brain, there's now your brain, the sky, and you, all of them contained within your brain. So the brain is pretty wide. That's pretty amazing how wide it is. She then goes on, um, since we skipped the second stanza, the brain is deeper than the sea. For hold them blue to blue. What's blue? Why blue to blue? Yeah. Um, the concept of blue is something we can't really describe with words. It's a color. It's something ineffable once again. So when she says, hold them blue to blue with capital B, she's just trying to, it's, it's almost like she's joking. She's trying to capture just like a very simple child, childish way of, of, of getting these two ineffable things. Okay. 
Um, they're both ineffable. There's no way of defining blue um, as a felt experience, except by saying, well, you know, it's like, I don't know, blue. Um, yeah. What's your name? Okay, so we know the ocean is blue. Yeah. Couldn't colors be defined, like each individual color be defined as a certain wavelength? That wouldn't get, then you'd be saying a wavelength produces that color rather than saying that's the definition of the color. Um, issues will come up, there, there are various issues that will come up with color blindness, for example. Um, where, um, anyone in this class color blind? Okay. Um, so there are certain issues that will come up with color blindness. And in fact, um, all human beings are to some extent color blind, which is to say that um, different wavelengths of light will produce the same sensations, um, the same color sensations, even though they're different wavelengths for all human beings. Um, there are, there are, um, there isn't a, to use an incredibly important concept for this class, there isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence between um, wavelengths and the colors we perceive. There's some regularity, but there isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence. Um, but the simple question I have for you is, we understand what one of those blues is for hold them blue to blue. What are you holding together? Yeah. Good. Well, you... I was going back to you. Okay, hang, hold your thought. Um, what are you holding together when you hold them blue to blue? Yeah, George. The idea of blue that's in your brain and blue of the sea. Okay, so she said, though, if you look at the first stanza and notice that the, um, all, stand, all the stanzas have the same structure, this corresponds to put them side by side. Brain and sky, put them side by side. Brain and sea, hold them blue to blue. So one thing is blue, that's obviously the sea. The other thing that's blue is the brain. How is the brain blue? Isabel. Uh huh. Okay, so you're seeing that blue is metaphorical. That is, hold them blue to blue because blue is, is um, the color of depth um, in the sense that our very idea of depth is most um, metaphorically given to us by the idea of the sea. And um, therefore, out of the blue or the idea of um, um, things being really deep was going to go with the idea of blueness. Yeah, what's your name? Uh, David. David. Juxtaposing whatever idea of blue we have with whatever sensation of blue that we receive. Okay, good. Nice. Um, what's your name? My name is Luca. And uh, I was just thinking um, before we were talking about the sky and how that's blue. So maybe in the second stanza, um, the them is actually the sky and the ocean or the sea. Okay, so, so maybe what you have here is um, transitivity, 
That is the brain, the sky is blue. If you hold the sky and the sea together, uh, they're the same size and the brain is wider than the sky. But that doesn't explain how this is going to turn into one the other will absorb. I'm sorry, what's your name? Greg? Yeah. Uh, I think maybe it could be that in pondering the sea, the sea sort of fills your brain, which would make it blue because the sea is blue. Okay, good. That somehow the brain that is thinking about the sea um, turns into like a chameleon. Um, absorbs the colors of, takes on the colors of the thing that it's thinking about. And that would explain the word absorb in um, the, the next line. The one the other will absorb as sponges buckets do. So which is the sponge, which is the bucket? The brain, the brain is the sponge, which makes a kind of physiological sense, especially in the mid-19th century. And the sea is the bucket. But again, notice how small they've become. Why have they become so small? Because the brain can do that to things, can make them small, can recalibrate sizes in order to think about things. But then notice that that blue to blue, hold them side by side in the first stanza. The brain is wider than the sky. For put them side by side, we would say it's pretty clear that the first is the brain and the second is the sky. But the blue to blue, it's not clear in the second stanza, whether the sea is making the brain blue or whether the brain is making the sea blue. Because the sea has no color. Color is only something that exists in the mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I was thinking maybe it could also be that um, the brain is the bucket and the sea is the sponge, and in which case would imply that the brain can also influence the sea as the sea influences the brain. Okay. Um, yeah, I see what you're saying. That's great. That, and that would be a way of saying that it's the blue that is in our minds, that is part of our perceptual um, um, equipment for the world. Um, do people know what false color photographs are? Um, you often see them when you're looking at, like, Mars um, and, or... or um, when you take pictures of space or when you take infrared pictures, um, false color means is that you get um, something that's a wavelength and then there's a program to turn that wavelength into a color. That's what the brain does is we do false color, um, false color perceptions of the world because in fact what is in the world, colors are what are called secondary qualities. They don't, they don't exist in the world. What exists in the world are wavelengths of light. We know that birds, for example, see wildly different colors from what we see. Partly we know this because birds have four primary colors, whereas we only have three. Um, do people know this? Um, primary colors are determined by the cones in the eye. Um, people know about rods and cones, remember that? Um, so primary colors are determined by the cones. We have cones that are specialized for, the, for three different wavelengths of light. And the colors that we see in the world are a combination of signals that are coming on three different channels um, that come through the cones. Not black and white, but all the colors that we see come through the cones. And um, those cones specialize in three different parts of the spectrum. Birds have cones that specialize in four different parts of the spectrum. Therefore, they have four primary colors, which is something we can't even think of in a um, complete way. 
um, because we'd have to imagine colors we couldn't imagine um, to know what a bird's experience of color was like. Um, but what we do know is that they is that they have different colors. They see things in different colors, including colors we don't know, from how we see things. So colors come from the brain. And if you look at a sea and it's beautiful and blue, the reason it's blue is that your brain is coloring it blue. Yeah. Um, last summer I worked at the Pepperberg Lab here at Uh-huh. Um, with uh, gray parrots. Um, gray to so us. What? Gray to us. And uh, so I know specifically they can see into well into the ultraviolet range. Yeah. Um, and what was interesting is because these are some really interesting parrots and they have a lot of linguistic capabilities, you can ask them, like, what color is this object? Um, and give them a cashew if you get it right. Um, uh, and so you, uh, one of the difficulties was we've taught them the names of our colors. Yeah. But they're not seeing what we're seeing. Yeah. And so their differentiation between colors is a little wonky at times. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I remember we substituted uh, a different orange cup that looked almost exactly the same orange to the humans in the lab. Yeah. But the birds just had no idea what color it was. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What are you talking about? Orange. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. And again, um, those of you who are colorblind have probably had that experience too. That is that people are saying, can't you see that that tie and that jacket um, are utterly different from each other? And you're saying, no, they're like the same color. Um, so everyone is colorblind in that sense with respect to birds. Um, yeah? What, what you were talking about is that even though the experience of color is different between birds and us, the function in the brain is the same. Well, birds actually, because they can discriminate more colors, they and they can therefore see things that we can't and see differences that we can't. Um, that that possibility means that um, they're um, interpreting signals, for example, in designs um, differently than we're able to interpret them. Um, we may think, for example, that two butterflies look exactly alike. Um, but the birds will say, no, one butterfly is edible and the other isn't. And we won't be able to see the difference, but to the birds, they'll look like completely different colors. Um, so, to the, so we can do it by reading the wavelengths. We have machinery that will read the wavelengths. Um, but I'm sure what you could do in that lab is you could find out that, um, that a parrot was um, right to deny that something was orange by... Um, um, measuring the wavelength of light that was coming off of it, even though you saw it as exactly the same orange. Um, you could see different wavelengths were coming off of it. Um, so, yeah, and if you've, um, how do you know you're colorblind? Those tests with dots. Yeah, so explain how those tests work. Um, the, the dots are, well, there's various different colored dots, and the idea is that, uh, uh, personally, I'm red-green colorblind, so the dots that would be different would have would be separated from the others by a little bit more red and green, mm -hmm. for example. And so, people who can differentiate more easily will be able to see the difference. But since the red and green are toned down, sort of for me, then it looks too similar to the other dots, and I can't see what's happening. But sometimes, also, they have the reverse test where you can see patterns that um, that people who don't have red-green colorblind can't. So sometimes you'll see like the number nine, and um, if you see the nine, it means you're colorblind. Um, have you ever had that experience on tests? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Okay, well, there are tests that, that, that the very fact that you see something proves that you're colorblind, which actually means that you see something different. Not only that you're not seeing something, but you're also capable of seeing something that other people can't see. Um, Oliver Sacks actually um, has shown that people who, um, which occasionally happens that if you can see only in black and white, you can sometimes see things that, and there is, um, there is an extreme form of colorblindness where you only see black and white. Um, apparently inducible by um, huge ibuprofen overdose. Um, but that if you can only see in black and white, there's actually a kind of visual acuity that you get um, that people who see in color don't have. Um, so you see different things. Okay, last stanza since uh, we only have uh, four minutes left. Um, the brain is just the weight of God. That's a strong thing to say. The brain is just the weight of God. For half them pound for pound. So now we know how much God weighs, about two and a half or three pounds. Um, why? Because God is, if you're, if you're using all of your brain to think about the greatest thing you can think about, that would be God. For half them pound for pound, and they will differ, if they do, as syllable from sound. What's the difference between syllable and sound? Qualitative. Yeah, syllables have meaning. Sounds don't. Sounds don't necessarily. Yeah. Would you say then the, the syllable is the secondary quality? Yes. The yep, the syllable would be the secondary quality. The syllable is what comes to life in the brain, in the mind. So sound can be meaningless. Syllable is language. Syllable is meaning. So again, God is a syllable. But in the brain, can take on meaning. So where does God get to be God? From the human brain. Um, okay, we will pursue some of these issues in this course. Um, on the syllabus, there's reading for Monday, um, and you should do it. Um, two stories. So for Monday, there are two, two short stories to read. They are in the book by Borges, the um, short stories, but there are also links to them.